Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk with electrical engineer Chris Gamble. Yeah, you remember him, the guy who used to co-host this podcast, where we talk about design trade-offs, searching for component parts, and the manner in which design work is being altered by component manufacturers. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 71, Design Avenues, December 11th, 2014. So Adam, how do you decide what features to implement in hardware and what features to implement in code? Uh, well, we, we implement a, a lot of features in code for bridges. Um, mm-hmm. Because that's a really effective method of making bridges stand up. Um, well, no, in reality, <laughs> <laughs> in reality, we do very little in code, and almost everything is hardware. I am not driving across a Python bridge. <laughs> I, I would awesome. not either. You just define a lane variable, and if you need more, you just make it from three lanes to four lanes. Boom! And if that's all it took, I'd be. Yeah. Software sounds so easy. Yeah, yeah. Why does anyone ever complain about it? Well, I hear electrical engineers talk about programming and solder. Do you, uh, do you add them programming concrete? Uh, you know, that might be a, a good way to describe it. Um, yeah, I suppose you could call it programming in concrete. Uh, I don't think anybody's ever said that before, but. Trademark it. Put it on a T-shirt. Got it. <laughs> Boom. Web store 2015. Engineering Commons. You heard it here first. <laughs> Well, you know, the reality is that uh, as engineers, we do have a lot of flexibility these days in choosing a combination of, you know, mechanical or electrical or or computing components to implement the systems that we design. And uh, in fact, the number of choices can can become overwhelming at times. And so it seems uh, important that we start to take a look at the relative advantages and disadvantages of each design avenue. And so uh, we're going to talk some about that this evening. And to do so, to join our conversation, is electrical engineer Chris Gamble. Longtime listeners may remember him as the former co-host of this podcast. And he is the founder of Contextual Electronics, which is an educational program that integrates the theory of electrical engineering with the practice of circuit board design and development. Recently, he's been busy creating a next-generation search engine for electronic components, And so we're looking forward to asking him about his transition from hardware to software designer. Chris, welcome back to the Engineering Commons. Well, thanks, Jeff, and thanks, everybody else, for having me back. It's it's been too long. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Crowd noise. Throngs throngs of fans. (laughs) This is the best best intro I've ever had. (laughs) Well, you're fresh off your European tour. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 man. Yeah. wasn't really touring, but yeah, <laughs> maybe someday. Someday it, the it counts. The band will get back together, and yeah, we'll tour <laughs> when you need the cash grab. I'm big in Japan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now, uh, Chris, you were on with us about a year ago, yeah, and I know it was about this time of year because you were telling us about the Christmas ale you got from the local brewery. So, oh yeah, the first question has to be: Have you obtained enough Christmas ale to get you through uh, the month of December? Uh, no, not enough yet. I've actually, I had a conversation this evening that I'm not allowed to stockpile like I want to. Um, I told my wife to, you know, not let me. And being in Germany and, and being in, in Europe in general for like two weeks stretch was like, 
that was nothing but beer. So I, I need to take a break and, you know. But it's Christmas back in January. I know. I know. <laughs> God, don't let your wife over to my house. She I would, know. I have so much beer. It was actually my yeah. Black Friday. Oh, yeah? You found a deal or something, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I uh, My favorite bottle shop in the area opened at 8.30 in the morning, so at 7.20 or so, I got in line to get myself some Bourbon County coffee, or coffee stout and barley wine and just regular stout. That that must have been a healthy line, a healthy looking line of people that w- woke up and went shopping for beer at seven thirty in the morning. <laughs> there were actually the guy ahead of me. Uh, he, he came all the way from Greenville, North Carolina, which is about an hour drive, just to wait for this stuff. Wow, that's yeah, dedication. That's, yeah, it is. Yeah. So it is pretty cool. Got quite a bit of beer and some free stuff from the Goose Island rep that was there, which was pretty neat. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah, I was in Chicago a couple weeks ago. That was fun. So that's that's a good good area, good area to be in. So. Yeah, I've only ever had layovers there, but it was all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, holidays. Oh yeah. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm not uh, not not going too heavy on the uh, Christmas sale this year, but uh, it was about a year ago, and and uh, thinking back now, that was actually before my course had launched. You guys were nice enough to have me on to talk about uh, what that was going to be and and the beta program that was going on at the time. Yeah. So. Should we just book you for next year at this time so you can launch yeah. your, your, your next idea? <laughs> Schedule it now, yeah. Whatever uh, <laughs> one-year cycles of, of ideas, ups and downs, you know? <laughs> we'll tell you what. We'll, uh, in a little bit, we can get back and, and see what the current uh, status is of uh, contextual electronics. But can you tell us a little bit about uh, your current enterprise and, and how it is that a, a hardware guy got sucked into doing software development? Sure. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so contextual electronics was the program. I actually ended up in February of this year. So after about three months after we aired the show, I actually quit my job. So I was at ABB doing industrial control design and stuff like that. And I really liked it there. Uh, but I just, you know, had started the course. So I left the court, I left my job and did that full time. And then about a month later, I got a call after I announced that I had left. And uh, it was this company uh, that some people might have heard of. Uh, but basically, they called me up and said, you know, why don't you come out here? We'd love to talk about some ideas we have and hear about your ideas. And it was just this great, uh, you know, great exchange and got to meet, uh, you know, a bunch of their people. And so mm-hmm. started, uh, you know, a you know, part-time relationship with them. And, and that's kind of become my main gig now. So it's been it's been moving into software. The company is called Supply Frame. They, uh, they bought Hackaday about a year and a half ago. And uh, they also own sites like Fine Chips and, um, uh, you know, a wide range of, of basic electronic component sites and, and, uh, and also run an ad network around electronic components. So hmm. kind of a cool cross-section of, of different software things. But basically, yeah, software. Huh? I mean, like, that was new for me, uh, especially web software, which is like a whole other beast. Um, right. Because I've worked with software people before, but... That's like, uh, it's different when you're doing like a product that's a release thing versus a web thing that keeps getting released, you know, continuously. Right. So you had some experience putting together the website for um, the Amp Hour and, and you set up the original website for, for this podcast. Mm. So you had some some web experience. How? Uh, what's the difference? Is it is it just a level of complexity or is it a completely different way oh, of thinking? It's totally. Yeah, it's totally. Yeah. So we, so, so engineering commons, the amp hour, my personal sites, it's all WordPress, right? So it's all kind of out of the box type of thing. Um, when I kind of suggest and I throw in my two cents when I'm talking to these developers that I work with, and they kind of look at me and they shoot me this gaze of like, oh, how cute. He thinks he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> 
And and that's happened more than once. And it's true, though. I mean, like, it's like, that's like, I think the equivalent thing for, like, electronics would be like, well, I've programmed an Arduino, so now I'd like to reprogram your Vertex 7 FPGA type of thing, right? It's like, yes, they're both electronics, but no, they're not even close to the same kind of thing in terms of complexity and deployment and everything else like that. So, mm-hmm. and I mean, a mechanic would be like, yeah, I've whittled before and I'd like to run your five axis CNC machine type of thing. You know what I mean? Or <laughs> in mechanic or in uh, civil, it'd be like, yeah, well, I've used Tinker Toys and I'd like to build this bridge for you now and design in code. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's it's just a totally different world. Uh, so you know, like the the high level. Uh, software stuff, but since it was all around the electronics industry, right? So all these 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 uh, websites around electronics, basically that's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm contributing is the is kind of the application side and the the marketing and the product type of design stuff like that. So basically, all of my gripes that I've been building up for the past ten years uh, and throughout my learning and throughout you know through my course and everything else, uh, I basically get to kind of air them and then we get to start fixing stuff and that. That has been the most exciting thing for me. That and actually the data. The data is very interesting as well, just the amount of amount of data that's out there. So tell me a little more about – I'm kind of interested in the, the big picture with supply frames. So they seem to – they're doing a lot of delivery of the information. Are they actually doing component distribu- – you know, are they selling stuff? Are they a distributor? Or, or what's their relationship to the electronics component market? Oh, no. So we're friends with everybody basically. I mean basically uh, because we have contact with so many engineers and because – uh, you know, we interact through fine ships and stuff like that. Basically, we, we don't actually hold any inventory. We kind of just help people find parts. And then when they need to go buy them through an online distributor or through like a larger distributor, basically we kind of help guide them there. And then there's, you know, there's like referral type money for that kind of thing. And and basically, it's, so it's, it is a, it's a, you know, it's, it's actually, I always say it's kind of similar to Google, right? So there's a search aspect. There's the ads aspect, which is how Google makes all of its money. Um and and basically it's about information and kind of helping people find answers and it's all data driven so that's that's kind of what's interesting about it especially because you know all of that stuff has been you know really a big mystery to me you kind of i kind of keep hearing big data over and over and over again you know you kind of hear this in the in the press and stuff like that you don't really get what it is but then when you start seeing it and you're seeing it, it's like okay well it's just a big flat database but you have to do lots of interesting things with that data in order to make it useful for someone right so so the example mm-hmm. you always hear is like the um, do you guys hear that story about the when target sent out an ad to a, a teenage girl's house letting her know that she was pregnant before she did yeah. because of the buying pattern she bought like hand moisturizer and a couple of other things that basically they had indications that she was pregnant so they started sending her coupons for baby stuff well she yeah, didn't know that right. And her, yeah, and her, and her dad found the the ads and yada yada yada. I remember how it actually all went down, but but basically that that's kind of like the the crazy amounts of things you can infer when you have a big enough data set. And when you think about that from an electronics perspective, I mean, there's just so many components out there, and anyone who's designed with electronics before has seen and had to deal with just amount of massive massive data out there. And so, kind of trying to bring sanity to that is a big task, but something that's been sorely needed. And so that's kind of what got me so interested in it is just kind of organizing that data and making it easier on myself. <laughs> so coming from a, a hardware and electrical background, would you, would it be, is it surprising to you that there's as much data supplied by, um, 
you know, companies like DigiKey, Mauser, you know, the, that there's as much data to be aggregated in an industry where people are typically pretty tight-lipped about things? Um, you know, so like looking at the history of it, actually, over time, it was it was actually really interesting. Like there was a lot of pushback against that at first because it was very tight-lipped. But then basically as, as a lot of the distri- online distributors, like the ones you mentioned, on uh, Mauser, DigiKey, stuff like that, and then also especially the manufacturers, as they started to figure out, you know, this is how people are going to be buying parts long into the future, you know, that started to open up and you started getting, there was less of kind of the, the, the like it used to be that, um, you know, if you needed a data book, you had to have someone come and bring you a data book and shake your hand and, and talk to you and hand you a big pile of dead trees. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, that's just not how people do business. There's no time for that anymore. There's still human aspects to it, but it's, um, so once you actually, once the, once the, the industry kind of started figuring that stuff out, I think they opened up a lot more and now it's kind of moving into this new era, or at least in my opinion, uh, in terms of, um, the other data that's out there, because it's actually, it's not just the data sheet. Like, so data sheets are the kind of the standard of how you figure out what a part's about and stuff like that. That stuff's been out there for a long time now. There's PDFs and stuff like that. But it's actually the interesting stuff then is how how users interact with that, right? So if I look at if I look at a hundred parts and I I actually focus on two of them, right? That kind of information is actually more interesting than just in terms of who downloaded the data sheets. Because if someone you know downloads a hundred, you stop seeing what they're doing. But if you start looking at you know actual actions around them and then you start presenting them you know other related data and see how they interact with that kind of stuff, it's it's actually it's a really interesting interaction, and you start to kind of um, you start to being able to offer people better services and better parts for their needs because that's mm-hmm. ultimately what you need to do. Did I answer your question? I don't know if I did. No, absolutely, you did. I mean, I I, I can understand the incentive. It's just it's surprising to me given our track record. It's it's not like a lot of other fields where I think there's a lot more openness, if you will. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of the, I honestly, honestly, if I look at it, like at least from my own experience kind of over time, you know, it's, it has been getting better and better. And like a lot of the manufacturer sites are getting better and the distributor sites are getting better. And obviously our sites are, are, are getting better. Um, but I think for a long time, it was just that like, when you focus on, when you're a company focused on building chips or building resistors or whatever else, like, it's like, oh, websites, what the hell do we need with that? Right. You know, or data, what do we really need with that stuff? Um, and now I think it's just catching up finally, you know, like a lot of the, a lot of the web technologies that are out there for the Googles and the, you know, like the Zillows and the Yelps and stuff like that. Like all of these search sites and all the data sites around that kind of stuff are, are becoming more mature. And that technology mm-hmm. basically has started moving into our industry and really every industry. It's not just electronics. It's also, you know, mechanical and stuff like that as well. It's just every retail experience. If you look at it as a retail experience is changing in that way. I can definitely see it. I was, I think the one thought that came to my mind is there are still manufacturers, and I'm not going to name any Broadcom, that uh, <laughs> you still have to beg to get a data sheet in a lot of their parts if yeah. they'll provide it at all. Right, but that's more of a business decision, I think. It's not oh, really yeah. a. Yeah. It's not a technology. Like they have the capabilities of sending that stuff out. They're a very advanced company, but that's oh, more definitely. of a. That's just a mindset. That's like a. That's a competitiveness type of thing, and I think that. Basically, as soon as Broadcom can't get away with that anymore, they'll stop doing it, right? But mm-hmm. it's because they they usually it's the the technology leading companies that are doing that kind of thing, anyways. So they're doing what they can get away with. And so, do you see the future of this being that as someone is doing a search, you are identifying what type of 
system they might be designing and so what type of parts they might need next? Uh, yeah, there's some of that stuff, but I think actually the really interesting things are more like, so, so the things that I always talk about, so when I was at Keithley, when I was at ABB, you know, I was designing analog stuff, right? And Mm -hmm. if you look at the, the whole mass of electronic components that are out there, you know, maybe 1% of the, of the whole population is, is working with analogs or like precision analog is probably a better example. So, you know, high end op amps and really nice ADCs. A lot of people are just priced out of that range because they don't need the precision. And what that means is, is if you're trying to look at this big population of people in, in terms of like people designing electronics, you start to lose kind of the mass effects of, well, no one really ever looks at these parts except for a very few number of people. Now, if, if, if I'm looking for a part that, you know, a precision op amp, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's some kind of recommendation engine that's based on just general op amps, that's not going to be good for me because it's not the same kind of thing. If it's, you know, if it's, if the recommendation engine is just kind of for the general popu- the general group of people designing electronics, they might start suggesting in parts for people that are designing, you know, high speed microcontrollers or, you know, switching regulators or, you know what I mean? Like it's basically, you need to start finding constrained groups of people that, that, uh, in order to really make, uh, similar similar purchasing decisions stuff like that so if you start to kind of categorize people and slice up the population like that now if 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 we can recognize that i'm designing with precision op amps then we can start recommending well i'm designing with precision op amps jeff is designing with precision op amps why don't we you know start showing similar stuff between the two because that not not like like a privacy issue type of thing but just a you know similar to like an amazon recommendation engine people that bought this mm-hmm. kind of thing are interested in that kind of thing because one of the biggest problems in electronics is discovering new components that is actually one of the hardest things to do is finding out about new components so basically having like a a social proof mechanism of people that are similar to you because of these this group of uh trends that we see within you uh are also interested in this kind of thing over here. And the better we do with that, the better parts we'll be able to recommend and the better parts that you'll hopefully be able to find for your design faster. And that's ultimately what's, that's all that I care about as an engineer personally. Like I don't really care. Right. I don't care who tells me about the part. I just want to know about the part at some point so I can then go and make the recommendation because ultimately that's what every engineer cares about is they're going to make the recommend or they're going to make the final decision. But if you're not presented with it and if it's dig through site after site after site for information, you're never going to actually find anything useful. You're just going to spend your time, you know, clicking PDFs that are worthless. <laughs> yeah. right. I-, I could see how that would be useful. If you're an embedded systems guy, you might know exactly what microcontroller you want, but not have any idea how to power it. And, you know, seeing like, oh, this, you know, jelly bean linear regulator will do just fine. There's no bot- no need to search through pages of switching regulators. Yeah, right. Well, and I think another thing is like, so microcontrollers are a good example, right? So, so if you're, so it, the trend that I've always seen is that people that are designed with a certain type of microcontroller will almost always go back to that same microcontroller. And there's, there's some practical reasons for that, right? Because there's code bases and stuff like that. People want to design with what's familiar. They know limitations, that kind of thing. But then what happens if that person then is actually restricted from using the part that they're always used to? Then they're just absolutely screwed, right? Because now it's like starting from scratch. And when you're kind of that that starting from scratch mentality happens a lot more than people probably think because you know people are either thrust into new industries or into new situations right maybe you get a new job you have to design a new set of uh, to a new set of criteria you might have to uh 
Yeah, you might be, like I said, you might be constrained on what you're allowed to buy. You might be constrained, or you might just be a student coming out of school. You might be a person, a software person entering into the hardware industry, that kind of thing. That's that's happening a lot as well. So all of these things are basically like, you know, people are always kind of starting from scratch in the electronics industry just because it's so broad. And then what do you do when you're in that situation? So hopefully it's used parts.io. Uh, do we mention it's parts.io? That's the name of the site that I'm working on. Yeah. You would not. I was I was going to make sure that you <laughs> let everybody know that that's where they could go to play with it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, so it's basically, it's just interesting data. I mean, like that's ultimately why I got involved with it. And I, I think that we're, we're starting to do some of that stuff. When you were talking about introducing engineers to the fact that there were new chips, you had an interesting effort trying to do that with a video blog, oh. a video <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, but so, my my question is, what is going to be more effective? Okay, now you've dis, you've discovered this this person is a new engineer. How how in the world are you going to capture them and get them to sit for five minutes to learn about the features of a new chip? Uh, you're not. I mean, that's basically it. I mean, so that and that and that's a great example of like so so what you're talking about was chipreport.tv. I don't recommend people go and watch it. There was about six episodes <laughs> on YouTube, but what that was was that was actually part of what contextual electronics turned into was basically, you know, me thinking about when I was getting started, how did I find out about new chips? And that was basically like, well, this is one way to do it. You could have a talking head on a screen, my head, and basically recommend chips. And then, you know, maybe you go and you find about this new, this new industry and stuff like that. And that is one way to do it, but it's, that's very narrow, right? I mean, there's only, there was only six videos there that even still I only did it once a week. Um, Right, but but to your credit, Chris, I mean, you were seeing you were seeing a need, and you were trying to address it. At least you were trying something, uh, which was better than just throwing out data sheets and hoping somebody stumbles across your website and downloads the, downloads the right. data sheet. Right. Yeah, and that is, I mean, that's that's kind of the problem. That's what it comes down to. And a, a lot of uh, you know other ways that people often find components is you know there was uh, technical journals that were sponsored uh, by advertising for a long time, and that kind of print print advertising went away. And so that's kind of a problem as well. So that, that, that avenue is gone for finding about new components. There was always, uh, there used to be legions of salespeople that would come by and tell you about new components, but, you know, cost cutting in the distributor industry and the manufacturing, basically just less and less margin per part means there's less salespeople out there telling you about new components. So that's another thing that, uh, you get kind of, you don't find out about new components from. I mean, people, you can get newsletters, but often that stuff gets lost in the shuffle. So often, like, when it comes down to it, like, when you're at the point of saying, okay, I know I need a new, I know I need to find something new, but then what do you really do with it? It's like, that's that's really where it starts to get become difficult. And I've forgotten what the example you were given, Jeff. It was when you were starting out or something like that. Well, I was just saying, if you're an engineer that, that either you're a new engineer and you don't know what components are available or you're looking in a new area and so you don't know, you know, where there's a new offering, how do you, how do you get that information out? And you've mentioned all the, one, all the old methods. You either had salespeople go out or you, you uh, sponsored, you know, magazine articles or, you, you know, you somehow got your, your data out in a journal or, or a trade magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this new era, I was just – curious, you know, how Parts.io was going to go about it differently. I mean, it, now that you've identified that this person is in a certain area, might be interested in this new chip, now how do you grab them and say, I need five minutes of your time to, you know, obviously if, if someone is looking for the part, they really need the part, you'll spend hours looking for it. You'll spend days looking for it if, if, the, if the demand is great enough. 
But if you're just casually looking through it, you don't, you think you have an okay part. You don't know that the new one could, you know, have your cost or, or triple your performance. You'll just go right past it because you don't know you have a problem. Right, right. Well, and, and so the, that's, that's the thing I was thinking of is the five minutes of your time thing. So there are uh, big manufacturers out there uh, that release something like 500 to 1,000 parts a year. So that's like, you know, anywhere from two to three a day, effectively. And so if you start thinking about <laughs> if, if, you know, even if you constrain it by segment, right? So, so uh, switching regulators, right? Some people here might know a thing or two about switching regulators, right? Uh, Not a clue. No, you have to start from uh, yeah. square one. Yeah. Uh, so, but switching regulators, there's just tons and tons in the marketplace for good reason. But if you constrain those those companies that are putting out 500 to 1,000 a year, probably maybe maybe 100 of those are, are switching regulators. So that means you need, you know, five minutes every three days of an engineer. Like, you're just not going to get that time. And that's, and that's right. for one manufacturer. You think about every manufacturer is putting out new parts all the time. And then the really interesting thing is that when you start looking at the kind of the serendipity aspect of design, right? So the way that people used to do it, now this is going to be a good old days kind of thing, even though I wasn't there, you know, they would get a catalog <laughs> and they would, or they'd get a data book and they would flip through and they'd say, oh, I, I think about that. And, and, you know, they'd see a part there and they'd say, well, I could probably use that at blank and blank and blank at someday, right? And, and basically they'd file it away in their mental memory. And then when a situation comes up where they need something similar to that, they snap into it. And basically because they had, they had looked through that book and they browsed through that thing, they, had, they, they remembered that and they, they can go and design with that. You know, basically the, the burgeoning number of parts that are out there, it's just harder and harder to do that kind of thing. So people now are just dependent on parametrics and uh, that's kind of the way to do it. Now, once you're in a parametric search engine, you know, in terms of finding new components in the same sector, that's, um, that's the hard part, right? That's, that's actually what's really hard to do is finding, finding new components within once you know what you actually need. That's the difficult thing. And, uh, so that's what we're trying to solve. Yeah. And it is a problem. I, I, you know, they have the studies where if you've got, uh, I think they did it with like jellies or jams, but, but if they gave, they offered buyers like three different flavors, the buyers would select something, but then they'd offer them 12 different flavors and the buyers would walk away cause they couldn't decide what flavor they wanted. Yep. And I think yeah. that in, in this world where you've got a zillion places you can go to and you can get reviews and you can get, you know, specs and, it, 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 at least for me, it becomes tough because I'll, I'll go from site to site to site to site. And at the end of an hour, I just walk away because I don't know. I need to think about it for a while because I'm just so overloaded with information that I don't know what's relative or what's important. And so I end up not buying something rather than, than saying, yeah, that's what I need. Yeah. So there's, there, yeah, there's, there's a couple of problems there. One is definitely the kind of uh, the amount of information. And so I'll bring up one of my favorite examples, is, and I'm sure uh, mechanical favorite examples as well. McMaster Car is like oh, yeah. is like one of the holy grails of, of like online technical shopping, right? I mean, basically, mm-hmm. if you know what you want, you know you need a, a you know, hex screw and you need this thread and whatever, you just go there. And the way they do it is basically they are the trusted source. They actually don't have brand names for the most part. They do have some. But then you just go there and your choice is the hex screw, right? And right. so if you don't want to do that though, then, you know, you don't do that. You know, you have to put your trust in them in terms of like supplying, always having the parts you need and stuff like that. And I just don't think that that really exists the same way in the electronics industry. Maybe there's a place for that, but it doesn't exist right now. Uh, but yeah, the Love other problem is- to just go buy the op amp. 
the op amp yeah exactly right i mean but then but then basically basically mcmaster goes to you know manufacturers and they say you don't get to put your name on this this is this is now a mcmaster thing right and and if you think about all of the brand names that are out there around electronic components they would very very few would go for that maybe like some of the the chinese manufacturers might go for it but you know they have brand power around their name as well right i want to buy a burr brown op amp right even though ti bought burr brown uh (laughs) so yeah that i don't think that's going to be changing anytime soon the other problem there though is actually if you don't know what you're looking for right so if you go to mcmaster and you know you're looking for that hex screw with the thread whatever whatever uh but you know the other problem there is sometimes you don't know what you're looking for and that's probably the harder problem to solve right and have you given any thought or has supply frame given any thought to the fact that many of these same issues happen in the mechanical world and i'm sure happen in other you know other fields of engineering uh what do you mean like uh like offering solutions for that kind of thing or like are well uh, i mean, I mean if you if you if you're offering a if you're offering a choice of of various resistors and op amps and microprocessors why not be offering the same thing with screws and bolts and uh flanges and hydraulic pumps and cylinders. Well, let's include the chemical engineers, the acid, the base. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Hydrofluoric, hydrosulfuric, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's No, that's a good point. Um, the thing is that uh, I don't think that there's enough... Um, in, un- unless you go to the, to the more generalized stuff, right? Like the... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you buy an 8051 processor, if you buy, you know, an LM317 linear regulator, yeah, you're going to be getting the mostly the same thing because that's technology from, you know, 10, 20 years ago, right? Kind of right. same thing with hydrofluoric acid, right? It's been around. Uh, screws, they've been around. But if you start looking at an FPGA or if you look at, you know, a new switching regulator or if you look at, you know, any number of kind of newer style of components – um, basically they're staking their claim on that, 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 uh, defining feature and, and by definition, they're trying to make it so that the parts are different one to another. So mm-hmm. I, I think you can actually do that right now for a lot of parts. You know, if you go out and you want to design something that is not necessarily leading edge on specs, you know, you can find lots of replacement parts and you can find similar parts among, among, uh, you know, between vendors and stuff like that, different manufacturers making the same part, LM324, mm-hmm. right? But um, but they don't want to do that because that's low margin for them and it's expensive to run fabs. So, <laughs> yeah, and design chips. Do, do you think the mechanical guys also benefit from, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's some f- exceptions to this, but the fact that you can just go to a Lowe's or a Home Depot or a local hardware store and just kind of wander the shelves and put your fingers on things and, and see if it's what you want and get ideas that way. Whereas you know, uh, Radio Shack's well, pretty dried up. Yeah. I mean, well, and even if you did have a Radio Shack and everything's in a dip 14, you know, package, it's like, well, there's, <laughs> there's only so much you can evaluate with your eyeballs with electronic components because, mm-hmm. so that's another good example, like, especially comparing against a site like McMaster, which I love, right? They have the benefit of you be, you can go and scan visually and at least start to narrow things down. But if everything's in the same package type, you can have, you know, you can have 40 different types of component in the exact same package type. And that, that scanning doesn't really help you much. Um, (laughs) 
picturing an electronic store hardware shop where, you know, instead of people walking around with their boxes, seeing if the screws fit, they have like rolling lab carts and you just, you plunk your chip down and run a quick test. Yeah, plug it in. <laughs> yep. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or like we're soldering and desoldering there. stuff down. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like the Home Depot's got the saws, you know, we'll solder up to four chips for you. <laughs> then you got to pay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Exactly. I like that. I mean, yeah, and and that's kind of that's really where a lot of the the issues come in, right? It's like you're kind of dependent on data sheets, you're dependent on app notes and stuff like that. Not that a mechanical doesn't or chemical doesn't. It's just that uh, it's the the features that seem like they're most important to a design because a lot of the times the features also define the design, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, but but don't I mean, not every mechanical device is a bolt. Correct, uh, correct, correct. You know, so so if you have a hydraulic pump, you're going to, you know, be worried about, you know, uh, what kind of pressures you've got and, and what kind of regulators you need and what are the limitations and what kind of power uh, do you need to drive the thing. Yep. And, you know, so so every component that is not, you know, a simple fastener is going to have similarly a spec sheet that a mechanical engineer has to review and, and make sure everything uh, matches up. Right. Uh, and to Carmen, to what you were saying – yeah, there's a lot of times when I would go just try to wander a, a, a someplace like a Home Depot to get ideas. But if you're doing something like a hydraulic pump or you're using hydraulic yeah. cylinders and pneumatic cylinders, there's just not a whole lot of stuff that's common to what you're trying to design. And things like, uh, you know, let me see it. Let me see the performance. Sometimes you want to you want to hear what you know what the sound makes, and and when you hear the thunk when the thing closes, and there's some some things that you just can't get from uh, from either browsing a catalog or, or wandering through the store uh, that sometimes you just have to make a guess and say, well, I'm going to buy this component and hope it works. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. You have to, uh, you have to buy something else. Yeah. Well, and if it just worked, if it just worked every time, right, we wouldn't have jobs. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down <laughs> to. Like, that's what engineering is about is like, yeah, you know, if it, if it was just like, if it was just building with Lego blocks, it'd be like, okay, well, no offense to software people, but software people would just do it. And actually, on the bright side, that actually is happening more and more where software people are able to move into hardware because it's like, you know, the barrier to entry is lowering. You know, that's interesting on a lot of levels where these things plug together now and it's just like, okay, this just works. Now let's write some interesting software for it. Um, mm-hmm. So that is happening more and more. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that you're right, Jeff. It's not, it's, you still have to evaluate stuff and that's that's a big part of our jobs. Yeah, and and to uh, what Adam was saying at the opening, he was joking about uh, building a bridge with code. But I, I imagine that we're not that far away from the point where the bridge is loaded with sensors to mm-hmm. tell, you know, load and temperature and all this kind of stuff. And adjustments are being made to the structure of the bridge on an ongoing basis to try to increase, you know, life or safety, something like that. We're already there for, uh, like, long-term man- maintenance and uh, snow and ice. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe a few more years till we till we start doing uh, moving beams or something, but yeah, it's coming. I was gonna okay. say they put sensors on there and they say, yeah, they, they should replace this bridge. And at least in the states, they're like, eh, maybe we can wait another thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get around to it. Was it D, D minus? Is that the is that the current grade? I think uh, I mean, uh, it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> need to hire more civvies. I think we need to build more. <laughs> uh, build more. Just stuff. give us more money. Exactly. Hey, I'm down. I like it. I like when We're, bridges stay up. We need, we need to make master car for civil engineers. Just put down yeah. the bridge. <laughs> Is there something the like that for cities? I mean, like, do you guys have like like concrete catalogs? I'm sorry, this sounds really ignorant um, on my part. Well, well um, actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, 
Um, the the concrete industry does put together a catalog on on concrete. That it's um, really heavy. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's got things like uh, admixtures and and um, actually, I mean, it was given out free. As, it was a textbook in one of my classes. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, um, um, one of the major the steel manufacturers they put out uh, one of the major um, design references. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not so much a catalog, but it's a it's a design guide slash code. So are there together by the steel industry? Yeah. So like, I think the thing would be like, are there then like, like custom brand name that you can buy that's like super spec or patented on top of that then? Cause I think ultimately that's what it comes down to is like, um, there's delineation based on brand name, right? In the stuff I work with. Yes. Uh, and there's one company, uh, well, I do traffic mostly, mm-hmm. uh, pavement marking signals, lighting, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, and there's one brand, um, which is by and far owns the, they have brand recognition. Everybody knows their, their products. Um, they also happen to make a lot of office supplies like post-it notes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Um, but they're, they're kind of a leader in, in things like sign cheating. So yeah, there, there's definitely brand recognition with, with that sort of products. Um, and they've got catalogs and they've got new stuff that they're bringing out all the time. Um, that they're trying to sell to us. Right. And so what it comes down to, I think, is just what it comes down to for all of these, like all of the industries we're talking about is money, right? Because company A, company M, uh, <laughs> company MMM, uh, they, they, they want to charge more than like if everybody's designing to a spec, right? So the concrete thing, like everybody has to design to that spec because it's a textbook and everybody expects the same performance every time. When you start to delineate, you start to make, you know, company... A wants to design something that they can charge one cent more for or $10 more for or $100 more for, that's when you start to get things where you need to be able to make those comparisons then. One way you can do that is based on brand. Another way you can do that is based on specs that are outside of a standard or a sta- or recognized, you know, regular uh, commoditized thing. And so that ultimately right. is where it comes from. And basically, I think, uh, you know, in the civil world, there there's... You know, it may be more constrained. I, maybe not, though, now that you talk about the, the traffic stuff, especially, because that seems like that could have a ton of stuff. But, like, mechanical as well. You guys, I mean, everybody has, like, these huge catalogs. And what it comes down to, and what this is called, is called vertical search, right? So it's a vertical because, you know, it's not like everybody's searching for this stuff. It's not like there's a data set that's all of the Internet. It's all of the things that are around a certain vertical, right, electronics. But then within that, there's just so many different things with different parameter sets and different, uh, you know, search that you basically, you can't just search for keywords. You have to search for parameters. You have to search for a load of different things. So another, another, uh, similar example would be like, like I mentioned Zillow before, right? Housing is a, is a vertical search where you are searching, you know, you're just searching houses, but then, you know, there's a ton of, uh, data you have to gather around that. There's d- tons of parameters, like how many bedrooms it has, how many bathrooms it has. And then basically when you start to going through that search, you have a, a different kind of problem than a Google has because Google is relating basically keywords between websites and then relevance based on, you know, who's pointing to who. You don't really have that with, you know, one house is not pointing to another house. You can't, you can't make a decision based on, well, this is the most popular house on the block. Right. So this is the best house for you. It's no, it's now here's your set of parameters 
you choose which parameters you want, and then we'll show you everything that we have based on that parameter set. So it's uh, but but that's a good example in that every house is different, and and I see that that's sort of the problem that uh, you get into is that as manufacturers want to differentiate their products, they're going to have features that aren't the same as everybody else. So things like you know supply voltage you can easily put because everybody has a supply voltage. But now do you have to create a separate uh, field and a separate value for every manufacturer that has a different feature? Yep. Um, it, it becomes a – at some point, it, it quits scaling. At some point, there's just not enough time for everybody to manually enter all these differences. I don't know if you exactly get to that point, but the housing issue or the example is, is perfect because every house is different and not every three-bedroom is the same as every other right. three-bedroom. Well, and the really interesting thing too is like, okay, so now, so now say that you have, you know, maybe a hundred blocks or a hundred houses in a neighborhood, right? And mm-hmm. then uh, one house has a Ferris wheel, right? And that's really awesome. But where do you put Ferris wheel when you're putting parameters in, right? You might have exactly. a catch-all like other, but no one's going to go and search for Ferris wheel. So then that house, which might be you know, super interesting to, you know, weirdos. Uh, <laughs> but basically, it's harder to find then, right? Even though there, yeah. it's, it is a standout one within there. So now the example for that would be in the electronics industry is companies have brand name or trademarked you know, communication protocols, right? They might have the only communication protocol, like the, the CRIS protocol. It's not real. Uh, but like the CRIS protocol, only one chip has that. But now you have to compare that against a very similar, but, uh, but, uh, differently named Jeff protocol. And then how do you compare those two? And ultimately that just makes it harder on the, you know, th- again, it's because of money these manufacturers are doing because they want to have, you know, some, you know, differentiation point, but, as an engineer, I want everything to be the same. I want it, I want everything to be normalized and I want to be able to compare apples to apples. And mm-hmm. man, we're comparing like apples to ducks sometimes, you know, it's just not even close. So, yeah. But also they start competing on the parametric search in they a way do. such that yeah. they get penalized if they have non-easily searchable features. Uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. If you put in a Ferris wheel in your in your backyard, and then you know you're not allowed to put it anywhere, you put it somewhere weird on the search, nobody knows about it, and you just spent you know hundred grand on a Ferris wheel. Yes. Yeah, so if yeah. if the Ferris wheel is a major selling point to your house, and you have no way to insert it, you poorly chose features you were looking to sell. Yeah, but the thing that's different is so like those are designed for different mediums, right? So so someone that installs a Ferris wheel might have been doing so back when they took out, uh, you know, uh what are they called? Classified ads, right? Where you put a picture of the Ferris wheel. Right? Exactly. And now if it's a parametric thing, if that's how people search now for these things, it, it's a different, you know, the, there might've always been these different ways of finding houses or Ferris wheels or parts or whatever, but it's basically, you know, they might've done it for different reasons. And now it's just kind of coming to terms with it and how people search differently because that stuff still exists, right? Even supply frame does, uh, search ads, right? So if, if you're on, you know, a certain set of sites and you search for a part, you know, basically you might see an ad for a very similar part that's that's run against that. That's similar to like a Google, you know, AdWords type of thing. Um, and so maybe you would see a picture of a Ferris wheel in your search, right? <laughs> I'm getting confused now, but uh, <laughs> being a Ferris, <laughs> a Ferris wheel of components. Right? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and that's why you always need input to coupling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so it's it's just it's it, it's it's a hard problem to solve and it's a really interesting problem to solve. So um yeah, it's and it's a uh, I'm working with a good team that basically is from is from the other search vertical search markets. So they they know their stuff. So it's a uh, it is interesting. And so has your background in hardware design helped you at all in this software world or is there anything that you've been able to bring from hardware design that's useful? Uh, I mean, other than your your industry knowledge, um, not You've been able to really. play the rants from the amp hour and just say don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I I don't think it, it. It's interesting because it seems like a you know as I mentioned the software people coming into the hardware space, it feels like a lot of them are bringing really good things like GitHub or Git in general, right? Like and just better mm-hmm. revision control and stuff like that, and 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 more like uh, test driven design and stuff like that. Like a lot of these things are trickling into the hardware space. I'm not sure that much goes in the other direction other than like double check your work because hardware will mess with your life. You know, it's like <laughs> that's that's the main thing that I feel like is pushed back of like if you get something wrong in hardware, you have to live with it. Whereas in software, you kind of get to fix things sometimes. It's not always easy, but you can fix things later. So right. I don't feel like I have much to add in terms of the hardware going back to the software people. Um <laughs> And that's industry specific. There are plenty of industries where they will force hardware changes to get rid of software bugs because the software is so expensive to change. That's true. Medical is a bit, is a good one, right? Uh, yeah, medical and aero are very <laughs> yeah. Anything with like regulation around the software, yeah, you'll just change the hardware because that might be easier. <laughs> See, I like for hardware to be more like software. When someone's like, well, "What should this resistor value be?" Like, I don't know. We'll figure it out in production. TBD. <laughs> I just designed in four potentiometers into my design. There we go. Yeah, just just twiddle the knobs till it works. That's right. Yeah, every resistor's a pot. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. So I I don't have much going back the other direction, but it has been it's been kind of a culture shock for me because um, you know like so lean startup. You guys know lean startup, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's based on a lot of like the you know kind of deploy and fail quickly, and then kind of turn around and see what works and then kind of feed that back. And it's this iterative design process. You kind of ship, uh, you know, the MVP, the, the minimum viable product, right? So something that's working, but might not be working with every feature that you need, basically something that is good for the marketplace. Well, that happens in software. And <laughs> for yeah. me, I'm like, but what about the board spins and what about the recalls? And it's like, no, that doesn't exist as much in software. And so sometimes it's like you kind of move you move faster and you, you kind of let stuff go a little bit sooner and you kind of hope that you have good, good feedback and you can turn around and, and change things quickly. And, and that is interesting in that regard. So, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. video games are a good example of that. I mean, how many video games now are released with day one updates that, you know, yeah. add functionality they just never got around to or fix bugs that no one had time to get to. And, Right. Well, part of that, though, is that that's the reliance on the physical medium, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. so like as you ship out a CD or a DVD with a game on it, yeah, day one, you need to, you know, have some kind of patch on top of it. If it was just a, if it was just a software pushed straight to your Xbox, then you don't need that, right? So Steam and all the Valve games like that are just downloaded, you don't need that. So that's a, that's a good example of kind of the, the, the web model versus the, the hardware model. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose that that brings up one of the uh, 
the things I try to talk about in, in the mechatronics course that I teach is, you know, basically we're, it's, it's for mechanical engineers. It's a grad level course for mechanical engineers. So basically we're teaching them electronics. Uh, they've usually had a, a circuit analysis course or two. I mean, they know what an oscilloscope is, but uh, we're teaching them uh, electronics. They're new to transistors and diodes and that kind of stuff. And then we're introducing an Arduino and saying, okay, do some programming. But the real uh, emphasis we try to make is not on the tools or the, or the you know the components, but it is making an intelligent trade-off between what do you implement as a mechanical device, what do you implement as an electrical device, and what do you implement in code. And so the mechanical part obviously is you know more robust, but it's harder to change. The electronics is usually a little you know again you have to put it you at least have to wire it up. They don't always get it in a nice. Uh, printed circuit board, but you have at least have to rewire it. You have to get the components there. So that's at least some level of difficulty. Software, you have to have the underlying CPU or, or processing unit. But once you have that, changes are pretty easy to make. And so it's all, to use a word, contextual. It is depends on what you're trying to accomplish. So if you want something that's really rugged, you may want to implement it as a mechanical device. And if you want something that's easily changed, uh, you do it in software. Right. Yeah. Man, all these trade-offs sounds really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> those those are the trade-offs, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any of these kind of trade-offs doing IC design. Everything's hardware. Everything's electrical. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, I think that's more of a that's a that's a definitely a system design type of thing. But when you are trying to make those decisions, then uh, I think I think the bigger question then is you know how do you know up front what you need to do there, right? I mean that's ultimately what is the interesting question is, do you know that you need to be super ruggedized? Yeah. Yeah. So, so for instance, I, I designed a machine one time for a company that was uh, uh, handling these big rolls, uh, big rollers, press uh, printing press rolls. And so some would be small in size and some would be big in size, but the operation they were conducting on it, they needed the same surface speed. And so the machine I designed had all kinds of uh we couldn't we couldn't do it electronically we had to mechanically change for for various reasons we had to mechanically change the gearing and so we ended up with this very complicated method of being able to change amongst i think we had like 12 different roll sizes that we were going to have to handle and you know the machine was built and it was constructed and it worked and everybody was happy but the feedback i got like a year or two later was they never used it. So what had happened was we'd gone to the marketing people and they'd say, what customers are you going to have? And they'd say, well, we're going to have customers that want the small rolls to the huge rolls and we need this entire range. And in the end, they were only doing the large rolls. They never did the small rolls because those customers never came along or, or they went away or I don't know exactly what the situation was. So we had, uh, we had designed in a lot of flexibility for, for this wide range of systems and they never used it. Yep. Uh, and that was that was frustrating to the uh, to the users because we could have done some things that were tailored to the large roles if we had known that that was what they needed all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so uh, I think in that example, I'm actually the marketing person these days, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is interesting because the software on the software side of things, we can change things quickly, but uh, it's. It's all about like actually making that decision of like, well, you know, maybe everybody needs the site to be in pink, but do we need to change it to that today? Not really. You know, that's like you have to kind of make those decisions and then what is actually right. important around around part search, that kind of thing. 
so that that uh yeah it's similar similar types of problems and definitely the marketing person is usually the problem but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh well let's not always blame the marketing guy customers sometimes don't know what they want either and we'll just say give me all the too. features that's true too right Yeah, and so, but we do have a lot of flexibility these days. So, for instance, I've got a grandfather clock. It's not a grandfather clock, but it's a mantle clock downstairs. Been passed down through the family, and as nearly as I can tell, it, it was last manufactured. This style of clock was last manufactured in 1893. So the clock is like 120 years old, yet it is able to keep track of the time and the date and the month and the, uh, the day of the week. And it does this all with mechanical gearing. But oh, of course, and they got a Y two K proof. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and it tracks leap years. It knows how to handle leap years, also. Wow. Now, but today we would never start a design if we were to design a clock. We'd never start with the design and say, "Well, let's do it out of mechanical gears." If it needed to last ten thousand years, you might. I mean, honestly, sure. I mean, there's that ten thousand year clock project. Actually, uh, who was that doing that? There's like a bunch of rich people doing that. They're building a ten thousand year clock. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe they think they can somehow uh, extend their lives long enough to be around for for the uh, the entire run. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a weird project. You should stick a note in the show notes about that. It's it's interesting, but it's weird. So yeah. I, uh, that's the long tomorrow tomorrow project, right? Long tomorrow. That's it. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think that's more about just the concept of designing things that will last more than for us would be a hundred years. That seems like a long time. You know, what if you had to design something that lasted 10,000 years? I bet I'd design it with gears. That's what I'm saying. I wouldn't design it with software, that's for sure. <laughs> or electronic components or really anything, you know. Batteries. Yeah. 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 Now, is that 100 years without doing anything to it, like any maintenance, or 100 years with maintenance? <laughs> if I remember correctly, it was no maintenance. I think Brian Eno was a big guy in that project. And Jeff Bezos, I think, was involved yeah. too, but I could be wrong right. about that. It's been going since the mid '90s, I thought, or sooner. I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah, interesting hmm. stuff. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it's all about your design constraints ultimately that that helps you kind of figure out which which you want, where you want to really place the the system design split of hardware, software, firmware, right, mechanical. What bridge. about you, Brian? Uh, in in your job, do you not have to do a lot of trade offs between software and hardware? Um. <laughs> Rarely. Uh, <laughs> okay. Plane, the plane wings are always done in hardware. <laughs> um, I've worked on uh, just by virtue of the type of projects I've worked on. Uh, you know, a lot of the micro, uh, a lot of the pro- projects that I've directly implemented in microprocessors were kind of field bus based. Mm-hmm. So it's not a lot of choice. You know, it's either integrated or it's not, or you either have a stack or you don't, or you're making it. And the purely hardware projects, there was no choice. I mean, you know, if you're trying to hit HERF requirements, that software's not going to help you at all. You know, it's it's getting more and more clear as to, I mean, where things should be. As much as it seems like it, it might not seem like it is from the outside world, it, it, it actually is. I mean... Um, so, so what do you mean it's getting more clear? Well, the heavy level of integration of a lot of things that used to be external ICs, um, which would require more, uh, 
elaborate drivers are now fully integrated systems like CAN. CAN's a good example. You know, it used to be a choice between implementing a bit-banged CAN system or buying a very expensive fully integrated IC that handles everything with, with integrated buffers and everything. Well, now that expensive IC is kind of a, you know, me too product on a pick micro. Okay. So it's the Silicon is so far advanced relative to what we want to do that it kind of makes the decisions for us. It's really only yeah, in the analog true. world that you have that issue. No, I see that even the analog though too. I mean, that was that was another reason. Uh, you know, when I was uh, deciding whether to leave my job or not. Like honestly, I, I would have these vendors coming in and tell me about new parts, and it would be like, guys, come on, you're taking all the fun stuff away. Like you know, the signal chains are getting compressed down onto silicon, that kind of thing too. Yeah. And so you'd see more and more people. Basically, it becomes more less of a job of like designing, picking from a uh, group of you know lots of different pieces within a system. And now it's more about shopping and finding the best the best part that's out there, and and that's that's hard to do. You know, it's like basically, and because the other problem with that is that you become more dependent on the supply chain. Like if you can't get that part tomorrow, it's no longer going designed in a new component that's part of your chain. It's now your whole chain was on a piece of silicon. If you can't get that silicon, you're kind of in trouble. So, but I mean, we've kind of gone to a world and, you know, I saw the, t- I think from my own point of view, we saw the tail end of, Hey, you can't design a single source part into a board, you know, right. That, that regulator has to have second sources, et cetera. Yeah. I don't think we live in a world where that's possible anymore. Right. No, and, that's, that's the exact same point I was making. Yeah. And it's, and it's not just the high end stuff. It's, it's not even just your, your micro or your DSP or your FPGA. I mean, you're just as likely to get end of life on an FPGA as you are on, you know, some little, uh, switching regulator or power management chip that you integrated. I, it's, you know, your hose, right. no matter what. Like it's now, it's now just a race of components engineering and praying that they don't end of life at while you're making the device. Can we and change the make- title of the episode to your hose, no matter what? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's well, it's, it's true. I mean, it, it, and it's getting, it actually what really, what really made it bad was kind of the, the, in the old days, it was great because military drove everything. Mm-hmm. And yep. they wanted to make it for 40 years and didn't want to think twice about the parts. Well, now the mobile industry is driving everything. And they'll have production runs that are measured in months. Months, yep. And, that yeah, they never use yeah, that IC true. again. Right. Well, and I think the other thing that's interesting is, like, so if you start looking at, you know, I think I think lots and lots of engineers see the their, their uh, design cycles getting compressed as well, right? So because... Competitors are moving in terms of, uh, you know, maybe maybe they had an 18-month development cycle previously. Now it's down to 12 months or maybe it's getting pushed to six months and stuff like that. Basically, you know, we said before that, like, it's the job of an engineer to kind of go out and prototype and um, and evaluate components. Well, now more and more as well, you know, if you, if you get through a process and you get three months in of your six-month cycle and you find that your part went obsolete or you can't get it in the supply chain or anything else like that, 
you've just wasted, you know, half your development cycle and you're, you're really, your product is screwed, right? I mean, you're screwed mm-hmm. probably from a job perspective too. And so what that ultimately means is that like more and more, like I think that design decisions will kind of start to align with purchasing decisions, right? So that's another thing. Like I think engineers traditionally have been uh, separated mostly from, uh, from purchasing departments. It's like, here's I designed I designed this thing I made this thing now you go and buy the components so we can send it to manufactured right and it's just like more and more that's just not possible because it's like well I designed it with this part with this one footprint and that's the only thing that anyone makes and it only has the spec that I need it has the Chris communication standard and you have to buy it like that and and at a certain point like if you're not pulling all of your uh purchasing stuff forward knowing can you buy it will it be reasonably priced will it meet your price target stuff like that if you're not doing that as an engineer now you know when you even if you do make your 6 month cycle and you you finally get this thing out it's going to be way too expensive it's going to be you know when it gets to manufacturing it'll be delayed because they can't get the parts yada 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 basically all basically engineers are are getting shoved towards you know, more and more uh, holistic design of looking at the supply chain and everything else. And that's where it really starts to get messy, I think. Mm-hmm. Because I know I never I never learned anything about that in school. And I didn't even learn that at my jobs. Uh, it's just like, I think it's something you have to... I mean, I think I started to learn that at the end of my second job at ABB before I left. I was really feeling that. But, you know, if you don't do that, you're screwed these days. Have you, have you guys seen the similar things? Well, like you've said, though, it used to be two separate jobs. And I yeah. think the, in addition to the underlines, you know, you're screwed. The, the expectation is that generally the person who's doing design is also doing tests, is also doing, you know, documentation. It's things that used to be kind of compartmentalized and and uh, specialized tasks, if you will, specifically component and, and bomb management are now just all thrust onto the one person. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I think that depends a lot on, on size of company as well. But I mean, I was at a company 150,000 and I was still doing a lot of that stuff, you know, just because everybody has their own product they're working on and everybody has their own, you know, everybody's working on a lot of stuff these days. You know, it's the mm-hmm. financial crisis didn't help a lot of stuff where, you know, jobs didn't come back. So yeah, I mean, more more work for one one engineer. I think that's ultimately what makes things difficult. So. So the faster design, the compressed design cycle doesn't necessarily mean that more engineers are going to be hired. It just means that more more load is going to be dumped on the existing engineers. Right. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> okay. Just checking. <laughs> can, can, will you will you survive it as an engineer? Well, I don't know. Your boss is going to find out though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, Christmas Christmas ale sales keep going up every year. Who knew? <laughs> engineers keep buying more and more of it. <laughs> <laughs> Carmen waits in line earlier and early every year on Black Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Thursday night, I'm just waiting at the bottle shop. Got to get my beer. Got to get my beer. That's right. <laughs> but it, it's interesting to be on this on this conversation from the other side of things. You know, being uh, an applications engineer for the IC industry, it's, I'm on the the integration side where I kind of want kind of want things to be integrated because you know that's more job security for me. That's more for me to do. Yep. At the same time, I always hate it yeah. when it comes time to validate a chip, and there's an ever-growing list of features I have to check off and make sure they work. But someone's got to do it, I guess. Right. 
Well, and that's another thing I've been talking about for a couple of years now. You know, you see this, and that's kind of where, for a long time, you know, you'd have like like Jim Williams would be designing in with you know maybe a constrained set of Jim Williams is a, a prolific uh, electrical engineer, self-taught uh, applications engineer for linear tech. I'm sure he's been mentioned on here before, possibly oh, even yeah. when I've I, been I on champion him when I can last time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but basically though, you know, like if you look at his circuits, these brilliant circuits and they still hold up today, they're just, they're, they're interesting. And, you know, he's using basic building block components, but, uh, what's a good example. So like, so he has a, a thermocouple measurement circuit that I love. I, I, uh, there, there's, he has a whole application note that's huge about it. And you look at it now and, and even in his application note, he laments that he uses a, a mic, an eighty fifty one to linearize the, the data that he gets out of it. But, but like you look at that, right? He's got maybe, you know, it's got to be close to like 25, 30 components on a board. And literally it's one component now, right? So now it's like yeah. electrical engineer before was doing this awesome design work because they had to, first off, the solution didn't exist, but they had these, these building block components. Or now it's pick one component. It costs a 10th of the price. It's a 20th of the power. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a snap to, to, you know, it's basically write to it, write and read from a bunch of registers. It's like, how are you going to decide against that? Unless you know, like there, there is no decision there. It's like, that is the new reality. And the thing is all of that interesting design work got pulled towards the Silicon. And that's what Carmen sees is a lot of the interesting validation and the design work that's all in the Silicon. Now, what that means for, for schlubs like me integrating on the, the component level really at the, the, the board level is that now if I can't get that component or if I can't get it for the right price based on what I want to sell my part or my, my uh, final product for, then I'm screwed. So I become somewhat of a pro shopper, right? And that's the the tough part. <laughs> that's tough to yeah. stomach because it's like, oh, is that really what I do? But like some of it is that. That is part of my skill set is knowing how to find and shop for components. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I got to do a bit of that as well. Um, you know, when, you, when you're selling to the laptop manufacturers over in Taiwan or wherever yeah. and I got to know, well, I, I can't design with this component because, yes, it would make my life much easier. But if I throw that in a reference design, they're just going to come back and say, well, do it again because this is going to up our bomb cost way too much. And Right. In, and they're not going to redesign the circuit because they don't have time for it because they have not a six-month cycle. They have a three-month cycle. No, excuse me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's – I mean that's just how it goes, right? It's just more and more, uh, you know – of that kind of similar, it's it's all based on money and speed and time to market and stuff like that. It's it's a reality we live in. Mm-hmm. in integrating more and more also pulls me deeper and deeper into customer designs. You know, I'm I'm looking over layouts at every step of the process from the initial yep. couple dozen board runs, so every group can do their quick testing to final production. You know, recommending changes and going over design and saying, you know, are you sure you can't squeeze just another extra spot for a cap here in case you need it? And, you know, all that kind of stuff too. Right. It's really total integration. You know, you were talking about having to work with purchasing the whole time and, you know, inside your company, you also have to work with the apps engineers outside of your company too, the entire time as well. Right. Well, and then on a business level too, that's, and that's another, so, so I was just at uh, Electronica in Munich, which is this monstrous trade show that happens every two years. And uh, I was corrected on this a little bit, but I, I was really interested just being there in terms of, so they have huge industrial 
and I'm sure Jeff knows this from his industrial work as well, but like automotive, industrial, right? That That is their kind of their wheelhouse. And just seeing how many people are still involved in the industry. Like, so so now Carmen goes and has to work with a applic- or sorry, a, another company to work with their parts to integrate with his application, which will then get pulled into a reference design, which then gets pulled into, you know, a final product, which then gets shipped out the door kind of thing. Well, someone mm-hmm. then has to ink a deal with, you know, a capacitor manufacturer or a inductor manufacturer or something like that. Basically, there are just so many people that are still involved in this process that it's it's mind-boggling to me that that still exists. But some of it is by necessity, right? There's these high-level deals that need to happen, stuff like that. But basically, electronics as a as a activity or a hobby or a vocation is one thing, but lest we forget... Uh, engineering and more specifically in my case electronics is a business and it's a big business and uh and so that ends up affecting a lot of decisions and stuff like that so another thing that i try to do is parts io is basically trying to remove people (laughs) (laughs) cut out that middleman just for me just for my own sanity as well like it's like i don't you know, like as much as the business needs to happen at some point, you know, I might need to go ink a deal with a, a, a vendor to get some kind of specialized pricing for, you know, high volume type things. If I can make that decision up front without having to go, you know, ask all this permission and just go and try things out without the permission, that's something that I want to do as an engineer because I need to turn around to design in six months. You know what I mean? It's like all based on that time mm-hmm. and the, the money thing. Yeah, but you bring up a good point, Chris, in that the the managers, though, get frustrated with engineers who want to, you know, play with the design. They are constantly thinking in deliveries and returns and shipping costs and maintenance costs and cost, 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 cost. Yep. And when the engineer is sitting there, well, well, let me try a different resistor. Or I think I can go find a different IC chip or let's try doing it this – they do not want to hear that. They want to hear, let's pick something, let's go with it, let's ship it out the door. They, they may not be aware there's so many intricacies, so many nuances to our design decisions, uh, but certainly as we as engineers need to need to be more aware of their concerns about putting stuff through the pipeline and getting it out the door and getting paid for it, that's what they're there for. Right. Well, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone on this one, but I, like, I'm, I'm an optimizer, right? I'm, all, I'm two things. I'm an optimizer and I'm a worst caser, right? So I want to optimize everything as best I can. So if you tell me I have until Friday to tweak a circuit, I'm going to take until Friday at 8 p.m. when everybody leaves the office because <laughs> that's what you said. You said Friday. I can wait till Friday. And because yeah. you want to make sure, and the, the other part of that is the worst case, right? I know that if it goes out the door at, you know, 7.59 and I had that extra minute, I could have fixed the problem that's going to come back and bite me in the ass in six months. And then I have to deal with it. And then I don't get to work on the new stuff that's interesting. I have to go back and fix the stupid stuff that I messed up six months ago because I didn't have that extra minute. So yeah, it, mm-hmm. it is a balance point And I don't know how to fix that, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to ask, I know at least in in my work, um, I insert myself into the whole supply chain and purchasing uh, willingly for control. Um, sometimes there's this specific thing I want and I need to basically carry that through purchasing in order to, to make it, that's the specific, uh, component I get or specific device. Is that exist in, in your guys' industry or is that a, a remnant of public purchasing? Um, so I have a, I have one of my best friends as a purchaser and so I get kind of the purchaser aspect of that stuff, but my own personal experience, like, and, and, and more on that is basically 
sometimes he's just told to order a thing and the thing can be from wherever. And sometimes he has to go out and get bidding and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're talking about with the, the wanting a specific one. Yeah. Well, sometimes I can either choose to, to purchase it through our agency and I can get Mm -hmm. what I want on whatever contract, or I can just throw it in the the big contract and say, uh, you know, big construction contract and say, contractor, Meet these specs and and do it. Buy thing, yes. yes. <laughs> Buy thing with spec one, spec two, spec yeah, yeah. right. Um, but like if it's a, a camera or something, I want a specific camera, and, and so I will I will handhold that through purchasing to get that specific part, and that's an advantage to me. Does that same sort of thing exist in in electronics design? Well, so my experience with this has been twofold. One, I, I used to have manufacturing house, and so I worked with the purchasing agent. And oftentimes, in that case, it was actually like designing to what we had. Um, so that was a little bit different. But then also, using electronics, there's part. I, I usually put it in three buckets. Parts I really, really care about. If you buy a, a single letter different in the manufacturer part number, I'm going to ring some necks. There's parts that are kind of jelly bean, so you can if you find a drop in or a functional replacement. That's not as big a deal. And then there's parts I don't give a crap about, like, like uh, you know, jelly bean resistors and stuff like that. If it meets the specs, that's fine. Um, and so especially when I wasn't using in-house, when I was using a contract manufacturer, oftentimes you had to kind of classify those things because on the jelly bean, the super jelly bean, like the resistors and stuff like that, you know, if you tried specking in a certain component, they were going to just laugh at you anyways and be like, yeah, we're using ours. We, we know what this is. So, um so that that and so I think the you know using the exact manufacturer part number if I put that on a on a drawing or if I put that on a a, a bomb BOM, uh, they better be there or else and they better be asking me if there's any hint of changing it but I'm gonna say no okay so there are some things that are similar but it depends on the type of component I think okay I'm gonna guess it's more related to the fact that it's public purchasing so there's additional laws and rules yeah. Right, I'm sure that that yeah. that's part of that. Um, yeah, because there's there's like bid. I mean, and then, and there's I think there's probably like so my buddy who's a purchaser, he's a military, he works in military stuff, and so he has similar things where he has to go out for bid based on specs, and some of that stuff is very similar, even though it's electronic stuff. Um, so it does exist. It's just I think it's more on the on the military or or super constrained type uh, aspects like that. So uh, speaking of uh, uh, projects that you had worked on to uh, uh, through design, uh, you had done some designs for your contextual electronics course, and uh, yes, yeah. So how's Episode how's that going? What's of the engineering commons? <laughs> <laughs> so so how's that going? How what is the status of contextual electronics? Uh, so that uh, so that ran from January through June. Uh, it was two eight-week courses with a break in the middle. Uh, so after that was done, I've been taking a break on that, actually. The plan right now – so the ba- it, it went well. I mean, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, a good group of folks that signed up for it and went through all the way through, and we basically built – you know, we went through a lot of these same kind of things, you know, making decisions based on available parts and – trying to design things in that made sense and doing trade-offs and, and learning about the theory and stuff like that, but then actually building it and dealing with supply chain stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in the second half, the second eight-week course. Um, actually, that's a good example, right? So we ended up – so I actually you know, ran the first half of the course kind of looking and looking on an online distributor and then basically found out that a lot of people couldn't get those parts without shipping them from the states. And there was mm-hmm. people in the course from all over the world. And that changes the entire supply chain – 
you know, if you're outside the States versus in the States, I mean, it's just an entirely different um, available supply chain. So we went through that and ended up working all that stuff out um, and basically built up this this project. It's called the Bench Buddy. And it uh, it went well. I mean, it, it worked for the most part. There were some some stumbles along the way, but actually that was really good learning experiences. Like I put mm-hmm. down the wrong footprint for one of the big parts. Um, <laughs> and um, But, you know, basically learning about the things you have to do in engineering as well, right? I mean, that's actually uh, kind of a blessing in disguise. It's like, yeah, this is going to happen. And so we kind of learned about that. And I, I knew how to fix my own budget, my own mistakes in the past. But basically everybody right. else learned how to fix my mistakes as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so uh, how was the feedback from the students? Did they uh, did they enjoy this experience or were they frustrated by the, the need to, to make changes as they went along? Uh, you know, it was both for sure. I mean, it's tough because as you know, I mean, Jeff, you teach courses as well. Like, like learning is a very linear, or like at least uh, university learning is a very linear process. And what I learned is I was, th- I was thinking, oh, well, this can be, um, I can fix this. And then I started like developing the course for it. And I'm like, holy crap, that's why it's linear. It's because <laughs> if you don't do step A and then you move to step B, but people haven't done step A yet, it's like you, sometimes you need to have these defined steps going through just because of logistics and, um, yeah. you know, in terms of like, I needed to ship everyone aboard. Well, we need to get the board out at a certain time. So everybody gets the board so they can order the parts, solder on the board, that kind of thing. So, um, so I learned a little bit more about, about the educational aspect of it. Um, but also that kind of led to some frustrations as well, because it wasn't designed as a linear course to start with. So, you know, there was mm-hmm. some, some tear up and stuff like that. I don't know. I think it balanced you know, basically anyone who's designed a PCB before, if you're not ripping up traces and you're not going back and redoing your own work, um, you're doing something wrong. You're either making too easy of a board or, or you're, uh, you're a freak of nature. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, but I think it, it went well overall. I mean, uh, so basically though, we're going to be relaunching in January and, um, and, uh, changing the format a little bit, hopefully to make it a little bit more iterative and, uh, yeah, I'll be announcing that stuff on the mailing list soon. So, that's terrific. And so, uh, if people are in- interested in signing up for your course, where do we send them? Uh, contextualelectronics.com, the hardest to spell URL on the internet. <laughs> um, you can also look up my name. Usually, that pops up with it. Uh, but yeah, I'd say if people are interested, have them uh, go to the main site, contextualelectronics.com, and then. Um, there's information there, obviously, but then sign up on the mailing list is probably the best way to, uh, you know, that's where we make all our announcements and stuff. So, Right. Right. So uh, on a recent episode, we talked with uh, – uh, it was the dean of the College of Edu- uh, Technology there at Purdue about competency-based education, and he was talking about their move to uh, – right now, they're sort of in the transition between, you know, grades and your credit hours – uh, and maybe digital badges where you can come in and, and take the test or pass the you know some sort of project and show that you've got a competency in a certain area. And it sounds like they're kind of you know developing this as they go along. Uh, but I've I've mentioned uh, off air a couple of times uh, uh, to these guys that I wondered about your course. That is, this is the type of course that I would like. I think electrical engineers to have, you know, as they come out of school, they may know how to do all the analysis, but they, do they know some of these 
details about uh, printed circuit board design and component design. And uh, so I sort of curious, uh, this whole idea of, of digital badging, whether at some point you could ever see your course handing out digital badges and saying, yes, I certify that this person has, a, you know, at least if not a, a proficiency, at least some exposure to doing uh, printed circuit board design. Uh, no, I wouldn't do, uh, so I, I, you know, I think that there is place for digital badging, but I don't think it's actually, uh, the course because, um, ultimately what it comes down to is with a course like contextual electronics, there's literally not time to care if like, I care about people finishing, but if they, if they drag their feet and they just watch the videos without participating, there's literally no way to find out. And so, uh, one of the big tenets behind contextual electronics is, um, at the end of it, your resume is the piece of hardware working, right. and um, and then your the next line item on your resume is building something on your own, and then the next line item on your resume is building the next thing and building the next thing and building the next thing. And I think literally that is the only way to prove yourself in a marketplace, especially the crowded marketplace these days, is showing projects, showing your work as you as you work through showing your errors, showing how you think through the problems, documenting that mm-hmm. stuff. Ultimately, that is literally the only way I can think that, um, that it works going forwards. Um, you know, kind of like these standardized, uh, standardized courses and tests and all these other things, you know, there's a big focus, at least in the States on standardization right now and mm-hmm. less so on creativity and everything else. Ultimately, you know, I, with contextual electronics, I want to equip people with, you know, some, some techniques, but ultimately the only thing that will get you a job, especially electronics is going to be, uh, your portfolio or your resume of stuff that you build. Mm -hmm. Um, I look a lot of the, like, so a lot of the, the other thing that I'm interested in is like the, um, there's a lot of courses that are, you know, either online or in person, kind of like these intensive 12 week courses for software. Right at the end, and usually it's like CSS, HTML, stuff like that. At the end, the way the courses often get paid, if not getting paid directly by the student, is actually getting paid by recruiters where the the people go and then work in companies as web developers. Mm -hmm. And thinking about that for mechanical or chemical or electrical or civil, you know, think about how how would that work for electronics, right? I I think about it for electronics. After 12 weeks, if you are able to go and work in a company as an electronics designer, you're you're a rock star and you sh- you deserve that job but like <laughs> no one i know starting from scratch because a lot of these people often in the software programs are starting from scratch right no one starting from scratch would ever know enough to go work in a company as an electronics designer in my opinion maybe i'm wrong um mm-hmm. unless unless it's a very constrained electronics company uh i'm sure the same goes for mechanical everybody else right i mean yeah and i've looked at that but the cost is prohibitive so if you know if you set everybody down with a laptop, that's not too bad. But if you're trying to teach people to do, you know, machine design, well, now you need, you know, CAD software and you need CNC machines to build the machine and you need a machine shop to construct stuff to show people how it all goes together. There's just no yeah. way to uh, uh, to economically uh, put that kind of program together. So what works for, as you say, for software development, I don't think works for uh, other engineering fields. Right. Well, assuming though, like even even in a in a perfect world where where costs were no issue, right? You had a perfect machine shop and and the available tools, materials, everything, licenses, everything. Like you you're at a tech shop and you're you're trying to teach someone mechanical stuff. 
after 12 weeks, you're not there, right? You're just not going to no. be there. But I think if you're at five projects deep, right? So if I, you know, start with a, you know, I start making a work holding in my first CNC project. And then I, you know, I work up to a, eventually I work up to a steam engine and a yada, yada, yada. And I prove that <laughs> I, I show, you know, all of these things that I'm building and I show how I'm building it and I document my work and by the 10th project, right? If the 10th project in my portfolio is something that people can see, or if I document it on YouTube, at that point, I might hire that person. After 10 projects, like of 10 documented projects or 10 electronics projects, I would hire that person probably. And that's ultimately where it goes, I think. Yeah. And, and, but I will just, this sort of goes back to the whole uh, house with a Ferris wheel issue. That is, well, yeah. if, if you're, if you're a hiring manager and you're looking for an engineer, you don't, you may not know you're looking for people with a certain type of project. Uh, they may have an interest in windmills or they may have an interest in, uh, you know, radar or they may have an interest in, you know, uh, home control systems, e- any of which would be applicable if you could if you could hire them. And you're, you don't have the time to sit down and watch every YouTube video that they put up. So I come back to some why do why do college degrees work? Well, they'd work because somebody can go, ah. This person passed a mechanical engineering or a civil engineering or a chemical engineering course or, or, or program and graduated. It's ABET accredited. So we have ABET to check on yeah. the people doing the accreditation. And they go, <laughs> yeah, I get it. nothing else matters, right? If I hire a guy that has an engineering degree, I'm good because someone else is, has said it's okay. So I come back to the whole digital badge. At some point, somebody's going to pay, I think – Somebody's going to say, well, we need somebody to go through all these projects and say, yes, this qualifies. You know, they have this competency or they don't have this competency. Uh, I don't know exactly how that happens. I don't know whether there's really a business there or not. But at some point, I think that people are going to want in the same way that we want a parametric search to find the part. We want a parametric search through the employees so that we can find the person who does have the experience we're looking for. Yeah. Well, Well, it. it Okay. Um, well, in, in some ways, that's already happening in in my industry, where there there are certifications that are required for certain things, and um, so you know, lesser so for the engineers, but signal and lighting design, you you get a certification, go through a class, and you get certified that you know this above and beyond a civil engineering degree or a civil engineering background, and, and it's mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's a step past that those other certifications that you have to have in order to get into our industry in the first place. Um, I don't know if that makes sense in, in other industries. I, I'm sure it does. I just don't know if that's, um, I don't know if that's something that those under other industries see value in. No, I think that does make sense. I mean, I think ultimately it's just about the output of, you know, so there's someone certifying you saying, you know, based it's based on a test, I'm guessing mm-hmm. at the end, right. You go through a training and then there's a mm-hmm. test showing competency. Like, yeah, that's kind of the model that's been there for a long time. Basically that's, that's college in a nutshell, right? You go through and you go through <laughs> at the end, then you take tests and yes, you know, enough stamp of approval. Good. Uh, I think it's a different thing though. Like, so if you don't have, so now, if I went and took that signal and lighting course that you're talking about, uh, that wouldn't be enough, though, right? I couldn't I couldn't break into the civil engineering field just from taking that course. Well, you need the the piece of paper that says professional engineer. 
Right, right. Um, right, and that's and that's another thing that's on yep. top of it, right? So what I'm saying is that a lot of the, the comparison I was making was to these software programs mm-hmm. where people might be a you know, a pre-med student or they might be, you know, a 20-year librarian and they go in, into this, these software courses and at the end they say, good enough to be a software, uh, you know, developer. <laughs> and and I just don't think that exists in the uh, in in the electronics or, or the electrical engineering or the mechanical or anything else like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it will. But, um, but I think that if people are looking to make that shift over, uh, then I think that yeah, I think that the there there is a possible way. It's just going to take a lot longer. And I think the same thing even for people coming out of you know people in the electronics industry or electrical engineering degree programs. They come out of there, and then what? Well, it says you have the, the four year degree. That's good. You got a, a base level of knowledge. But if you want to move into the specific designing PCBs industry, right, or or design electronic products, maybe you need something else on top of that. And that's probably where contextual electronics fits in in terms of badging i don't think i'd ever do badging but i think that yeah i think projects are the way to go maybe the projects are just on your resume though and you apply like any other one else right so yeah i have no doubt that that uh you know a lot of the lessons of engineering are only learned by jumping in and trying something and, and discovering that uh, uh unlike the textbook problems there is no one right solution and uh, you try various because you don't know exactly how it's going to work. You've never done it before. Um, you try things and it works or it doesn't work, and you modify your your path based on that. And as you're talking about, you know, uh, having to uh, uh, to rewire or or rearrange your printed circuit board if if you're doing anything of any complexity, I think it's that way with any engineering process. Uh, you try something, you adjust, you fail, you turn around. You know, you you make many iterations. Uh, and it's a very nonlinear process. Yeah. Oh, I think the other thing that kind of is kind of like the undercurrent here too, as well is a lot of these companies that want to hire people, they don't want to train people either, right? And so more and more they're yeah. expecting this to get pushed back into colleges, and so that's where they also want this badging type stuff, and they want all these other things, and it's just like, you know, part of the problem here is just that the companies don't want to train people, and they don't want to take time to train people, and that's fine. That's you know they're going to get what they get, but. um if they expect other systems on top of it, like a badging or whatever, uh, I think I just think in general projects are going to work better. So that's all. Anything else you guys want to know about parts.io? What, uh, when does it go non-registration based? Mind you, I, I do uh, think Dave is a little bit harsh and in, in uh, his assessment. It's 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 well worth the. Uh, the signing up to see it. Oh yeah. Well, so yeah, there is a registration right now. Basically I was just writing a blog post about that today. Basically that that's actually somewhat logistical as well. So like we talked a little bit about the vertical search and stuff like that. When you have to search across hundreds of millions of records, uh, you know, that takes some servers and we're not all the way there yet. Uh, so that's one thing. And then also there's a community aspect, which I do recommend people if they are looking to get into electronics. Uh, there's a community dot parts dot io so that's that's another reason as well so it, it it's all tied together there and then in the future you know sharing of lists of parts that you like and stuff like that the more social proof and social aspect of it so oh that'll come down in january though did i say that january 
January is the answer. Well, very good. Yeah, very we'll good. be on the lookout for it. <laughs> right, and so, uh, so Chris, any uh, any topics you'd like to see us cover on the Engineering Commons? You uh, you kind of uh, started this podcast as a, as an outlet for talking about you know philosophical aspects of engineering. We've tried to carry on with that since you've uh, you've moved on to other things, but uh, thought we'd check and see if there are any other interesting topics you thought we should uh, we should hit. Have you guys talked about ageism at all? It's actually on the list, I think. Is it? I think that's you know that's a tough one, right? But I think I had a conversation with someone who was talking about his friend dyeing his hair to get a job interview, and I think that that. It's this kind of latent, kind of underlying aspect. Now, I, actually, I, I saw a job listing. So uh, a family member of mine is, is looking for a job right now. And I saw in the job listing that I was, I was helping look for, the, uh, look for them, it said entrepreneurial spirit. And all I could see written there was, we want someone less than 30. I know that's not actually what it is, but like, that's, that's what it says to me, right? Like, that's, that's like a code for less than 30. Or willing mm-hmm. to work long hours, like, oh, you don't have kids or a family, right? I mean, like, there's all of these coded things in in the hiring, right? Go, kind of going back to the hiring type of uh, stuff for the engineering industry. I don't know who you talk to about it. Obviously, I'm not the person to talk to about it, but I think it's I think it's a big deal, and I think it's going to become an even bigger deal because uh, because you know especially as boomers start to retire and stuff like that, there might be an even bigger push for that kind of stuff. So I think, I think ageism or just the role of age and engineering in general is just a really mm-hmm. interesting uh, topic, even tech okay. and aging, you know, that kind of thing. Like, so parts that I owe, right. I mean, like uh, how do you get someone who's been searching through a paper catalog for 30 years and who is a fantastic design engineer, you know, like you just don't get them on your website. Right, because they're not on any website, and uh, right. so yeah, I just think it's. I think I think the age aspect of engineering uh, deserves a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of coverage. I think uh, yeah, there's lots of goodness. You guys are you got tons of stuff. I'll send you. I'll send you. <laughs> I'll send you a PDF of all my ideas. Oh well, cool. I will. I will be waiting anxiously for that. Cool. Well, keep up the good work, guys. I, I always like uh, your. You're back and forth with all of you. That's that's it's good that you guys keep doing this. So please keep doing it. Happy to carry on the flag. <laughs> good. <laughs> all right. Well, we should let you go then. Uh, thank you again, Chris, for coming on and, and joining us once again. We've uh, certainly enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Well, I'll talk to you guys next uh, next Dece- early December, late November, huh? <laughs> oh yeah. Marked it down already. The, the turkey episode with Chris Gamble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it. So the turkey trot, we'll call it the turkey talk. There you go. I like that. All right. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Thank you. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 